0: Hey, everyone. It's Anita and Lucas. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious.
1: Today, for the second half of the episode, we'll be chatting with Grace Isford from Lux Capital. But there was actually a lot that went down this week. So let's talk through some of the big news. First off, we're breaking into the biggest crypto venture fund ever. and Andreessen Horowitz this week announced $4.5 billion in funding for crypto startups, a third of which 1500000000 billion they're reserving exclusively for seed deals in early-stage companies. This seems like a fair amount of money.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a huge fund. And I mean, I, I know, Lucas, we were chatting about this before, and you were talking about sort of how they're thinking around which companies they fund has evolved.
1: Yeah, I mean, Andreessen Horowitz has, it feels like it's been around forever, but the fund was founded in like 2009 or something. And they've really changed over the past couple of years. This has been a big couple of years for them. They're backing a lot more companies than they used to. They're a huge player in the crypto space. They've really doubled down on crypto. A $4.5 billion fund should signal that in some capacity. But they're just backing a ton of startups in the space. And I think in some ways it's almost like they've seen how Y Combinator has been successful and they're trying to emulate that in some capacity capacity. capacity where they're just like, hey, maybe we don't have to be as choosy on seed deals as we used to be in this field. We can kind of just make our mark, see what kind of progress they make, and double down with them in growth stage funding later. So yeah, they're quite prolific in seed stage, it feels like.
0: Yeah, yeah. Some of their biggest investments in crypto have been Coinbase and OpenSea. So I think a lot of the narrative was that people were sort of skeptical of, you know, Andreessen making such big bets in the crypto space. And now they're looking pretty smart considering some of those bets that they have made. But I think what's also interesting here is like, when do you think these funds were raised? Like, what was sort of the timeline? Well, yeah,
1: that's the thing, because it's like... (laughs) You know, the past month, there's been a substantial crash in the crypto markets, as we've talked about on this podcast before. And that crash in the crypto markets has accompanied just a massive pull down in the public equity markets as well. So, you know, a company like Coinbase, they're trading lower than probably the last private round that Andreessen did for them or something at this point. They're worth a lot less than they were when they IPO'd. So, I mean, it's kind of funny because I feel like this is just a testament to great timing in terms of like big venture funds always being fundraising. Therefore, you can never be out of luck. But yeah, they're announcing this round at a time when there's like a lot of instability and a lot of unpredictability and how the next couple of years of the crypto market are going to shake out. So, I'd, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating timing, for sure.
0: Yeah, and, and given that they're such a big player, I'm curious, like, who else is competing with them? Who holds a candle to Andreessen in, in crypto investing?
1: Right, I mean, right now, for years and years, it's kind of been companies like, firms like Sequoia, and, you know, you've got Insight. The last couple of years, they've really been competing with hedge funds. But on the crypto side of things, like, there are a lot of, crypto-native, crypto-specific firms that have raised mega funds just to back startups in the crypto space. So firms like Paradigm, which had a $2.4 billion fund, which was a little bit more than Andreessen's last crypto fund, which was $2.2 billion. Paradigm's been doing really well. They've made a big name for themselves just because they have this big research team, a lot of people on it who have done some kind of like fundamental projects in the crypto space just building them out. There's Electric Capital. They've raised more than a billion in funds in their most recent bout. And Han Ventures, who is actually, Katie Han was the co-lead of the last crypto fund, and now she has her right own before. fund that's a billion and a half capital, and she's a solo GP of it. So it's a huge fund for just such a small team. So there are a lot of smaller players, but ultimately, Andreessen's still probably sitting on top. This amount of funding that they've closed at this point you know, is going to leave them in a pretty good position to get discounts in a field that they think is something that's long-term viable. Ultimately, probably good for them that they're deploying this capital at a time when like valuations are kind of Taking big haircuts.
0: Yeah, that's actually something I was gonna ask. I you mentioned that it was good timing. And I'm just curious about like, do you think they're gonna have any trouble deploying this much capital at a time when, you know, maybe activity in, in the crypto sector is gonna cool down a yeah, bit? Yeah,
1: I mean, that's that's a big question. Cause like, you know, you can't just put four point five billion dollars into startups if there are no new startups being started. But right. that's one of the advantages. <laughs> so like they underwent as a firm this like kind of infrastructural change and became a registered investment advisor. I don't know when this was a couple years ago or something. And as a result, they can put a substantial amount of their holdings into tokens. So they don't have to have $4.5 billion sitting on their balance sheet or sitting in this fund in cash. They could put all of this into Ethereum today— and then just kind of convert as they wanted to invest into startups. So I'm sure there's going to be, that's the reason that a fund that has one GP like Han Ventures can deploy a billion and a half in capital, because they can put it into these liquid token markets. They don't have to wait to get deal flow for startups because that's a little bit more complicated.
0: Right, and that's really interesting because it's possible that, you know, things like Bitcoin and Ethereum might be viewed as a bit safer and just sort of a place to park the capital until they can find startups that are worthy of funding.
1: Definitely, And they still, they still managed to find startups that they think are worth funding. This week, you wrote about a particularly interesting startup that they chose to fund. Which one was that?
0: Yeah. So I wrote this week about Andreessen and their crypto team taking an investment in Flow Carbon. Flow Carbon is a crypto startup started by someone we know very well and actually got a little bit more familiar with this month. At least I did personally. It's Adam Newman and his spouse and co-founder, Rebecca Newman. They co-founded this crypto startup along with, I I think, a couple of people from their family office who were managing their money for them. And Flow Carbon, what it does is it basically takes carbon credits and it makes them tradable on the blockchain. So just to take a step back and kind of unpack what that means for a second, a carbon credit is basically, it's a token, it, it represents a certain amount of carbon emissions, and companies generally buy them because they want to offset their own carbon emissions. So if you get a credit, it's that you're doing something good for the environment. It's like planting a certain number of trees, which would offset X amount of carbon that a company has emitted. So companies who want to say we're carbon neutral, we're net zero, like those sorts of pledges, how do they achieve that? Well, it's actually by purchasing carbon credits. So every Every time that carbon credit is actually created, then the simplest example is like a certain number of trees are planted and that ends up being a neutral effect, or at least that's what these companies say. So the reason for putting them on the blockchain, at least according to Flow Carbon, and I know there are some other startups in the space doing this, is that it makes it easier to trade these credits. It makes it lower cost for companies so that encourages more activity, encourages more companies to actually buy these credits and trade them. And it just makes the market more liquid. Because before, you know, it wasn't that easy to to buy and sell carbon credits. Mm -hmm. So that's what Flow Carbon is trying to do. And that's what they say their stated mission is. They say that they're actually creating the first open protocol for tokenizing these carbon credits from different projects across the globe.
1: Uh, Yeah, so I mean, there there are a bunch of things happening here. So, a lot of people who were like more environmental academics or experts took this as an opportunity to just criticize, you know, the carbon credit system and like the potential flaws with that. Like, this isn't like a, a silver bullet that can handle the contributions corporations are making to global warming. Then there are people like, okay. The system—it's got its problems. Fine, whatever. But why is it on the blockchain? So then there are those people. Then there are people that are like, "Wait, what the hell? This is Adam Newman of WeWork infamy. Why is he getting seventy million dollars from like a respected venture firm?" to launch something that, you know, sounds a little outlandish.
0: Yeah. And and I don't know if you watched We Crash. Like, I know it was definitely dramatized to some extent, but after watching that, it's like, how do you give this guy money? <laughs> I, like, how do you think that's a good idea? Yeah, I, I,
1: I watched an episode of that. I will say, I feel like it was kind of a funny time because there was like, there was that, there was the Elizabeth Holmes show on Hulu, and then there was the uh, Battle for Uber <laughs> show with Joseph Yeah, a yeah, lo-
0: lot of good startup content.
1: <laughs> but a lot of people are familiar with Newman's story now is the point, and they saw this and are just like okay this is uh, nice to see that they're giving the right guy a second chance.
0: <laughs> right, right. So I guess like moving back to the round itself, like this was an interesting round because it was structured in a way that's sort of different. So it was 70 million dollars in total led by Andreessen Horowitz and that involved two components. Part of it was traditional VC funding of about 32 million. And the rest came from a private pre sale of the company's token. And their token is called the Goddess Nature Token, <laughs> GNT. That's the ticker if you'd like to look it up. They are actually going to be launching a, uh, a public sale, which I think you can sign up for the waitlist on their site if you are so inclined. Um, oh, and the goddess nature token. It's like I, I wonder who came up with that. Well, right? Well,
1: <laughs> crypto and Adam Newman are a natural pairing because <laughs> Newman famously like had all these like phony metrics that he was using when WeWork was going public. People were digging into the S one, and they were like, "What the hell are community adjusted?" earnings and like there were just all these things and that's par for the course in crypto where like if you want to frame something in a certain way you can probably find a way to especially when you're not beholden by those pesky securities laws depending on how you structure your investments yeah (laughs) this got a good reaction on Twitter just because I feel like everyone saw this and was just like what the hell
0: (laughs) yeah like that guy I mean just one thing that was so weird is that he like walked through the streets of New York barefoot I mean I don't know that I would trust someone like that with billions of dollars I think that's really strange range to be honest, but you know, there's other reasons to be critical too, um, just of carbon credits in general. There's been a lot of talk about how you can actually enforce them and hold them accountable in the sense that, like, if a project is saying, Hey, we planted this many trees, like, how do you know that they actually did that? And, you know, what are some of those accountability mechanisms? So there's a lot of work being done in that space. And some of the other startups doing this are Toucan. I know Moss is another one. I know Lucas, you chatted with them a little while back, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, there are people, I mean, (laughs) there's this basic idea that there's so much rampant speculation in the crypto market. What if we could push some of that speculation into something with positive externalities? So there are a few companies in, you know, it's called regenerative finances, like the...
0: Refin Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> like that's like kind of the general idea around it. This company Moss, they're doing like NFTs tied to acres of the Amazon. And if you buy them, they go to a land trust where they manage them and ensure that they can't be like cut down by whatever... Tree cutter downers. <laughs> I don't
0: know what that. The bad yeah, people exactly, very bad something people like that. cutting down those trees. Uh,
1: yeah. But there are all of these environmental plays. And it's interesting because the crypto space has so much baggage tied up in the ecological impact because Bitcoin and Ethereum are both on these proof of work chains that use massive amounts of energy for each transaction. So when people think of like a blockchain company, they automatically think they're all bad for the environment, which isn't necessarily true. Like they all use energy. Right. And if you think these things, Things are completely useless. You're probably not listening to this podcast, but you also <laughs> might think that it's all a waste of energy regardless because these things serve no purpose in your mind. So if that's where you're starting, it's hard to poach you in a different direction. But generally, like Bitcoin network and Ethereum network use multitudes upon multitudes more energy than like your average proof of stake blockchain or something like that.
0: Right. And and one thing in, in Adam Newman's defense, <laughs> not to uh, not that I'm jumping to defend this individual, but um, They are, with Flow Carbon, they're using the CELO blockchain, and that's a proof-of-stake blockchain. So it's a lot more energy efficient. It's, It's definitely not nearly as bad for the environment as something like Bitcoin or Ethereum in its current state. Yeah. Um, so there's that. <laughs>
1: and CeeLo is another Andreessen investment. So I don't know. Yeah, wow. It's there you go. Like their companies all working together over time. And like maybe that's part of like the reason that they made this bet because he's I I don't know. I'm not gonna try to justify this for them. I am curious though, I was I was looking through that cap table, I was trying to see if Jared Leto was on it because he makes a fair amount of startup investments. But I don't <laughs> know if uh, Adam Newman wanted his person who plays him on the TV show to come into the deal.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't <laughs> know if Jared made him look too good. Um But yeah, this was this was just absolutely wild news. So we had to talk about it. I mean, even if carbon credits are a good thing, you know, even if you sort of suspend your skepticism about them, it like is Adam Newman really the right founder that you're going to back to execute on that vision?
1: It does seem like it's a it's an entertaining question to ask. But I think as we talk more about the public markets, I wanted to go into some other big news that happened this week, which was FTX launching stock trading on their platform. Can you give us a little bit more detail on that?
0: Yeah, so FTX, it's one of the biggest crypto exchanges headed by Sam Bankman-Fried, who's this notoriously sort of young, quirky blockchain billionaire. I think we talked about him a little bit last Mm -hmm. week too. And FTX is, I mean, historically, they've served institutions mostly, right? Big trading firms, uh, sort of like very technical traders. And now they're trying to expand a bit more into the retail investor market and served sort of average everyday investors. So they've launched this equity trading Capability. And they also announced, by the way, I thought this was a little interesting that users who do trade stocks with them can fund their accounts with stable coins. (sighs) So just throwing that out there, not algorithmic ones like Terra, but stable coins like USDC. I have to put like a trillion
1: dollars of (laughs) a trillion Luna tokens or whatever in there to equal. Yeah, to to get
0: one dollar to invest or something. But anyway, so they're launching this equity trading platform. And what was really notable and sort of interesting about this is that they said they're going to do this without using payment for order flow. And payment for order flow is this technique that caused a lot of controversy for Robinhood because Robinhood is a big user of this. And it, it's basically what Robinhood says enables them to offer its customers free trades. Do you want to tell us a little more about that, Lucas, and just sort of explain the, the background on it?
1: Yeah. So I mean, if you're doing zero fee trading on selling people stocks, you have to do it somehow. In crypto, you can find a lot of different ways to do it because the market's so unregulated. You can just like, okay, maybe Bitcoin costs $40,000 right now amongst market makers and we'll sell it to users at $41,000 or something like that. So like, you know, you can find a bunch of different ways to do it with crypto. It's very regulated in equities markets. So it's not like they can just like invent some fanciful way of doing things. So Robinhood does payment for order flow and they route the deal's, through these like preferred brokerage houses. Yeah,
0: basically middlemen and and those yeah, middlemen exa- clear the trades for them. So that's what caused a lot of controversy is that is that there's some criticism that If Robinhood basically routes the trades through a middleman instead of routing it directly to the exchange, are the users really getting the best price? They're advertising their product as free. They're saying it's free to use the platform. It's free to make trades. But there is some question as to whether users are actually getting their trades executed at the optimal price for them.
1: Yeah. And I think the deal with payment for order flow is like people have various opinions on it. The one thing is it feels a little morally murky in some capacity because it's kind of like you're routing all of retail's trades through these institutional powers that then kind of know what's happening in the market before, you know, these trades are executed even if it's for like fractions of a second or something. But ultimately, when you ride it through the NASDAQ, they're still giving them to company liquidity providers or whatever. So it ultimately shakes out in a somewhat similar way. It's not like wholly bad, but it was an interesting choice that they made this because they're going to have to find a different way to make money. And they've already pretty much said that they're not making money the way they're doing this. They're just out to kind of create a new revenue stream down the road
0: somehow. Right. Because... Just to be clear, like Robinhood gets paid by the market makers to route orders their way. So if FTX isn't going to be doing payment for order flow, that means they're sending trades directly to the exchange. So the market makers aren't paying them, right? And customers aren't paying them either. So this could definitely be a loss maker for FTX, but they're such a big company with so many different revenue streams that they can afford to make this kind of move. Whereas for Robinhood, they actually do make a lot of money getting paid by like the citadels of the world.
1: And I mean, it's interesting timing for them. FTX is a huge company; they're one of the most highly valued private companies in the world. Uh, I think they're like 32 billion or something like that. The crypto markets in a very tough spot. Maybe there aren't going to be as many consumers, especially interested in aping into crypto. <laughs> as a result, they are kind of diversifying into different markets that might have a little bit more staying power, the public markets. And it's kind of, it's interesting to weigh this against Robinhood, which, you know, as we talked about last week, Sam Bankman-Fried has a big stake in now. So it's interesting to weigh it against that, where it's like Robinhood started in the public markets and then went into crypto, and crypto became a big part of its business during the bull run, so they devoted a lot of their product strength to building out the crypto side. But now, the crypto market is, like, in a very tough spot, so it's their kind of Opposite ends of the consumer investing spectrum that have kind of met in the middle for a second. But Robinhood is pushing all this energy towards crypto and, you know, FTS is the opposite. The other way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's fascinating.
0: Right. And, and actually some spicy news came up this week from FTX about their potential acquisition strategy that their U.S. president was at Davos. And he said that there are two reasons that FTX might consider making an acquisition. And the first would be to acquire more users. And the second would be to acquire more licenses to operate in different places and different methods. So earlier this week, I was actually on Monday when CNBC reported you know, that sources told them FTX has been in acquisition talks with three different companies, and that's Webull, Apex Clearing, and Public.com, which is a startup that for, uh, I I guess, since the GameStop short squeeze, they've only been around since 2019, but since then... They transitioned away from payment for order flow as well. So they offer free trades to users, but they don't take payment for order flow. And that's sort of in alignment with what FTX is saying they'll do. So it'll be interesting to see if maybe that'll end up becoming an acquisition target for FTX.
1: Yeah. And I mean just wrapping stuff up here. I mean, Sam Bankman Fried has become a very like notable face in the crypto world. He's like talking a lot. He's he's on a bunch of regulatory committee meetings and stuff like that. You know, we're seeing seeing him around a lot. So it's clear like He's got a big presence. FTX is definitely making moves. They're going to be looking like a different company probably in a couple years than they look like now. And this comes as Coinbase is having a lot of turbulence. They're on the public markets. They're getting hammered. They've had a rough ride all around. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if things shake out any differently for FTX.
0: Yeah, and if Sam Bankman-Fried can really get them through this crypto winter if it it continues to persist. Mm Mm-hmm. This week, we chatted with Grace Isford. Isford is an investor at Lux Capital focused on pre-seed to growth stage companies in Web3, data infrastructure, AI, and ML. Prior to joining Lux, Isford was at Canvas Ventures.
1: Hey, everybody. Grace, it's great to have you.
2: Thanks. So excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: I think maybe just kicking things off, how did you get into crypto in the first place? You're you're an investor. You've invested in a lot of non-crypto things. How did crypto come about?
2: Yeah, so my background's actually in enterprise infrastructure investing and I spent a lot of time in the data infrastructure stack. I wanted to invest in ML and realized that. You actually had to figure out the data infrastructure in order to to run ML at scale. So that led me down a journey, a a deep thesis there. I ultimately invested in a data sharing company called Vendia. It's actually a serverless blockchain company, which enables data sharing at scale, cross-cloud, cross-geo. Really awesome company founded by Tim Wagner, the founder of AWS Lambda and Shruti Rao. He used to lead Amazon Managed Blockchain, was also an early Bitcoin miner in India. So actually through a data infrastructure investment, I learned the opportunity to you know share data immutably at scale and kind of the power. You know, there could be hundreds of companies built atop decentralized data systems and kind of a smart contracts, or the in Vendia's in case, the scalable ledger they built. And so that led me down the rabbit hole. Um, and then I ended up investing myself uh, personally, got into to yield farming, uh, coincided also with the move to New York, where, where many of my friends are also in the crypto and VC ecosystem. And now, you know, I, I'm at Lux full time, leading up a lot of our, our crypto and Web3 investing efforts.
1: As someone who's gotten a good look at the space so far, I'm just curious, how would you frame some of the biggest challenges facing crypto right now, just from an infrastructure standpoint?
2: Totally. Three major things. One, reliability. There's only two nines of reliability right now for nodes as a service providers. So, you know, that's your Alchemy and Fura. You know, MetaMask was down last week. There's not high reliability, especially if you compare it to the Web2 world and the enterprise systems there. Two, security, right? There seems to be a, a new security hack uh, reported every week from, you know, wormhole to Axie. And so, you know, how do you you manage risk of smart contracts and hacks there? And then three, you know, fraud and risk. So how do you deploy effective KYC at scale? How do you know, you know, actors are who they say they are? And how do you ultimately manage downside risk, uh, which I think is really keeping a lot of folks out of the, the crypto world right now, afraid of losing all their money if they venture too deeply into crypto Mm -hmm.
0: so on that first point about reliability i'm just curious like what do you think needs to be done for that to be sort of fleshed out like why are there so few players in the space right now
2: so there actually are a fair number of players trying to, to attack right, it, right? right. <laughs> and, and so I'm actually confident with the number of smart people and the number of inflows of capital, right? Like I think the, the craziest funding year ever for, for blockchain funding that, you know, we have a lot of good signs of building, you know, more reliable solutions. I think it's a combination of things. One, just the, the tech is still quite nascent. The market is still early. We haven't built those systems out yet. Two is, you know, we just haven't built a lot of the developer tooling, data infrastructure, monitoring, storage, uh, you know, blockchain networks at scale. And so I think we just need more of the foundational developer infrastructure should be built to both enable more people to build in a space and then ultimately enable these platforms to kind of grow over time.
0: Got it. And I'm also wondering about sort of applying your prior experience to the Web3 world. What are some of the lessons learned in terms of how like Web2 developed and all these parameters that you're talking about?
2: Uh, Yeah, it's really interesting. I do not think it's apples to apples, right, as much as I would like to to map (laughs) a Web2 stack to a Web3 stack. And I've given a fair amount of thought to it. But I I do think that there are crucial non-negotiables across any data developer stack, whether we're in crypto or Web2, right? Things like reliability, things like latency, things like security are, you know, in every historical kind of technological trend have, have been relatively important, of course. Different stakeholders care more about latency, perhaps in the trading world than maybe some other folks do. But as I think about it, right, it's more, you know, one of the biggest fundamental problems to enable these things to work reliably and with low latency at scale. And so that would be kind of the unifying factor in both kind of the Web 2 stack and the Web 3 stack. That's the principle I've been trying to use to guide myself.
1: I think a lot of people look at this space and, you know, maybe they're not very deep into crypto, but they're like, I see a lot more Web3 companies being hacked than I see Web2 companies. You know, I can think of some reasons why that would be. But why do you think that that is?
2: There's a lot of money flowing through it uh, right now. Um, And (laughs) and there's a lot of anonymization, right? I actually met this morning uh, Esteban, founder of TRM Labs, right? That's another company like Chainalysis, we're just trying to go after these bad actors because, you know, I think TRM, Chainalysis, several other companies in this space have, you know, next potential in terms of compliance and monitoring because you just do not have that yet at scale in the same way that we've kind of created these sophisticated AML systems on the you know financial infrastructure side in the web 2 world so I think that's a major thing that needs to develop to kind of get to that level mm-hmm. of sophistication.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think people are just, you know, they look at some of the consumer platforms and maybe they see these hundred million dollar hacks on things more advanced than the DeFi world. And then all of a sudden they're wondering, you know, how how safe is their money? Which, you know,
2: it's scary. Right. Yeah. And there's FDIC insurance in Web 2 versus Web 3. Right. At a very fundamental level. Right. At the same time, I do think there's a way to invest and have a lot of your money in crypto in a, in a relatively safe way. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to say zero risk and this is not right. financial advice, but um, I think it's about knowing what you're doing. And also, you know, having both, you know, friends, companies and a user experience combined with increased security and safeguards and, you know, being wise about putting your money, for example, in, you know, a slightly lower yield, but maybe safer anchor protocol versus a super high yield, but high risk kind of altcoin. Yeah, that, those are kind of sorts of things you can do to kind of minimize your risk at, in the space, right? A lot of the folks that were targeted in some of these hacks may have been aware that they had, you know, more money kind of at risk flowing through and, and really great risk when you're flowing or moving money between things versus, you know, just stable money sitting in a Coinbase uh, or Gemini account.
1: Well, that's that's kind of one of my questions. I mean, you mostly invest in infrastructure. There are obviously a lot of crypto VCs out there who are mainly doing consumer plays or like something around NFTs. But I guess when there's so many vulnerabilities out there, like it's like such uncharted territory. Is it kind of a little sketchy to be pushing consumers towards all of these products when it's like, there's still a lot of very base level questions that people are unsure about on the security side?
2: It's a good question. I think it comes back to just developing more mature infrastructure at large. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes back to the second and third points I mentioned around better security systems and better fraud and risk systems. You know, if you have those things more institutional money will be in there. You'll just see, you know, greater maturity in general. I think crypto is already growing. Fidelity just offered Bitcoin as part of their retirement saving account offering to consumers. So there's not only, you know, institutional demand from Fidelity, Goldman, JPM, et cetera, but we're also seeing folks want this as like a way to diversify their portfolio, right? And so kind of, I guess, back to your question, it's less about, you know, oh, put all your savings and and worth in crypto and more viewing it as this is an interesting kind of new asset class that, that you might want to, you know, diversify your assets with. And you can see, you know, meaningful incentive and growth over time. But, you know, knowing that it is still early from a security risk and fraud perspective. Mm
0: -hmm. So I know we talked a lot about security just now, but, you know, one thing I've been hearing and paying a lot of attention to is all these different sort of layer one or layer two solutions that are coming out and they are trying to balance these trade-offs, right? And I think Someone told me, you know, about like there, there are sort of three considerations you have of security, privacy and scalability. And I'm just curious what you think about how that's going to shake out. Like, do you think that it's always got to be an inherent trade off between those three things? And in terms of sort of what Web3 should prioritize mm-hmm. in development, where, where do you fall on that?
2: Great question. The common answer should be all three. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah ideally. Um, I, I think all three are, are super important. I think one of the biggest opportunities in, in, in crypto right now is still security, though, right? If you can build more reliable smart contracts at scale, right? I think the reliability piece is, is crucial, but, you know, you can't have a reliable system if it's not secure, right? And you can't, you know, run a system securely if you don't, you know, know who's within that system. So so I think security is is probably one of the most important pieces from a prioritization standpoint. And there's a lot of awesome smart contract auditing firms. I've been on the hunt for, you know really technology first solutions so that, you know, higher margin, less human in the loop or or consultative aspect to them and being able to kind of automate and monitor smart contracts uh, at scale.
1: Do you think it's going to scale with these auditing firms being kind of like the primary mechanism for proving reliability? Or like, I think of what would it take for an Apple or something to bring smart contracts into their ecosystem? And when I think about it, they would probably have like a set number of smart contracts that do certain things, And these are the standard and you have to use these in order to be in our store. Like, do you think there's that sort of centralization is in the future or, you know, what what do you think there?
2: A few things. Well, first of all, like the line to even get an audit is is crazy. You know, Mm -hmm. most of these companies, you have to pay exorbitant amounts to even get to the top of the list. And it, it takes a long time. So there's massive demand for it. Two, there's an interesting incentive structure thing, right? So how are you, you know, aligning the incentives of, for example, the hackers who are helping, you know, audit and kind of test, battle test uh, your smart contract? And and how do you properly compensate them to get the best result possible? And then three, I mean, this question on standards, most, you know, it it depends on an what realm you're, you're working in. But most companies today do require like an audited project, right? Mm-hmm. And so like if you're working with, you know, maybe a Uniswap or someone else, they, they may require like just as part of your partnership that you are audited by, you know, Certic or Quantstamp or Nate, take your pick. Mm-hmm. So, so I think we're starting to see that emerge. I think we need more of it. And I think we need, more efficient ways of doing it so that more people can do it uh, at scale and at the most robust and secure way possible.
0: So I know we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, some big high level sort of themes that you're looking at, but as an investor, I'm just curious, what are some of the particular niche spaces that you're really seeing a lot of opportunity right now?
2: A few things. I don't think enough people are, are taking advantage of kind of the nuances of the data and dev stack. So one space I think is really interesting is indexing. So, so most companies interacting with blockchain data need to do indexing in some way. Most people know of a company called The Graph, which is right. a decentralized kind of data indexer, uh, mostly on Ethereum. Indexing is... is Tricky to do in house, you know. I think companies like Dune and others have actually tried to build it in house with teams of six to eight engineers. You know, as a VC, when I hear that, I think that's a company opportunity. Yeah. Uh, if you have a, a six to eight headcount of building something that many people could use, mm-hmm. huge opportunity. And so the other thing with the graph is there's kind of a interesting incentive structure and their their tokenomics are kind of quite interesting. And so there's a lot of opportunity for maybe more centralized indexers or indexers as a service, offering you know ways to ingest data off the blockchain as an API. So that's the one. One area that's a little underexplored. Another is is kind of in the front-end IPFS stack. How are you storing data in a decentralized way? There's some cool companies building that space, like Ceramic Network, you know, Protocol Labs, obviously, kind of a a pioneer in that area. And I think the, the whole space around the developer stack above and below Node as a service providers. So, you know, things that theoretically, you know, an Alchemy, and Fura, a QuickNote, a Block Daemon could offer, but maybe haven't built yet or haven't specialized in. I don't think enough people are oppor- kind of recognizing the opportunity to build multi billion dollar companies just in that, you know, stack of a crypto developer tooling around Node as a
0: service. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to go back really quickly just to the indexing piece and ask you, sort of, why do you think that's so important?
2: You have to index data if you're like working with the block i guess it's, it's a problem that you don't have in web 2 right because you don't have you don't have blockchain data to index and you don't have to go block by block or kind of like in order to really understand what's going on but in many cases these companies are working with blockchain data and they need to have like a more detailed account of kind of what's going on under the hood in order to you know deploy smart contracts at scale, or, you know, it could really range across a variety of functions. And also every chain is different, right? So Solana indexing versus uh, Ethereum indexing. So it's a key need if you're leveraging blockchain data in any way, and you can't just import data, you know, from a data warehouse in the same way you can in Web2. So it's almost like a new step that's added.
1: I know that for a lot of these infrastructure companies, like you're betting on things that are specific to a single blockchain, perhaps, I guess, like, for the audience, maybe they're lightly familiar with Ethereum, maybe they know some of the other layer 1 chains. But they see Ethereum, they see something that doesn't do that many transactions, it's, you know, very high fees. I guess balancing privacy and scalability is one thing, but do you think that we're still seeing some layer ones that have a lot of potential to become dominant chains or do you feel like Ethereum is kind of going to be a big sticking point?
2: Never say never. Right. I think I like to invest in things that are are contrarian and and kind of inventing the future. uh, Right. And I think, you know, a lot of people thought when Ethereum came out, they'd be the only chain that would really work at scale for development. And then Solana came along and developers love Solana. And, you know, it's even lower latency. And now you're seeing a lot of attention with Terra and Avalanche. And so I think there's still growth in the layer one space. I think there are some layer ones that have, you know, a bit of a TVL like lead or just a market lead in general. And there's also kind of been the emergence of layer ones for more specific functions like privacy. So maybe like an Ironfish or an Aztec. Right. And so mm. where I think the, the most of the growth will come from, at least in the next you know, 12, 18 months, maybe from some layer ones, but also these layer ones that are doing more specific use cases and are kind of working together in a different way. Kind of this multi-chain, cross-chain world that I believe in and I think a lot of folks believe in are more open to having more chains than less. It's more a matter of which ones can kind of develop the ecosystem and focus on a use case to get that flywheel of initial adoption to work at scale.
1: I think there are a lot of crypto native funds out there. Lux Capital has a lot of investments in a lot of different industries and areas. I guess, how do you compete with someone whose sole focus is just on crypto? ton of partners, research everything like that.
2: Totally. We talked about this on the panel yesterday. I think a lot about circle of competence, right? And where can I be competitive versus others? And there are certain areas where, you know, you should totally have a crypto native fund involved, but there are certain areas where, you know, you benefit a lot from someone who's seen an enterprise SaaS model and or seen how Web2 systems run at scale from a reliability, security, and fraud and risk perspective, or think of, you know, our investment in Anchorage, right? Diogo, I think, has benefited a lot from some of our relationships in kind of the regulatory and financial infrastructure landscape and understanding there. So I think there's a lot of actually synergistic opportunities for generalist funds to be in crypto. But you have to just like any asset class in in the Web2 world, you have to know where you're strong and where you're weak. For example, you know, NFT investing is quite different than DeFi investing, which is quite different than crypto data infrastructure investing. And I would argue, you know, any person who says they invest in Web3 shouldn't invest in all of that. They should probably choose their sweet spot and their core competency. For me, I think competency is the enterprise and fintech infrastructure benefiting from past experience of the Web2 data infrastructure stack and the fintech infrastructure stack and seeing, you know, how do you port over from Web2 to Web3 and bridge that gap? And I think we're going to need a lot more translation between Web2 and Web3 to kind of get to an end solution or an end world in which there's 100 million users in Web3 instead of you know building in silos and crypto native things only. So I think there's you know opportunity for many, many funds to build in this space. And it's no surprise when there's foundational platforms to be built and a lot of smart people in this space that we've seen so
0: many VC dollars attracted to the space as well. So Grace, you got at this a little bit just now when talking about specialization and like knowing your core competencies. But I'm curious, given that you just spoke on this panel, what were some of the, the key takeaways that you were offering in terms of how DC's should actually increase allocations to the asset class.
2: Back to what I just said, a lot of smart people building this space where there's foundational platforms in, I'll go back again, reliability, security, and progress yeah. that have yet to be built. And so I think there's a, a genuine excitement there. You know, Many of my smartest friends are in crypto now and they were not a year or two ago. So that kind of unbridled opportunity is extremely exciting and electric. I think not enough folks are understanding kind of their differentiation in sweet spot. And so I think more you can think about, you know, your superpower or how your Web 2 skills map to Web 3 is critically important. Combined with the sequencing and timing of the industry, we were talking about a bit about this yesterday, is We are still quite early. It's almost like this new, like emerging technology. So thinking about maybe more immediate use cases for institutional financial infrastructure versus, you know, Dow financial infrastructure versus NFT infrastructure. There's almost like different timelines and, and kind of return profiles to each of them. And then the third thing, you know, I bake from hash brought this up, which I thought was a great point. Was a lot of people aren't honest about what they don't know, or maybe are afraid to learn. Yeah, that's so real. <laughs> and, and so it's something we talk about. You know, if you are an institution, or you are an individual, or you're a company that wants to learn more about crypto or doesn't understand crypto, rather than kind of being afraid of what you don't know, I encourage you to try it and actually invest and try DeFi farming and try DeFi and, and kind of see what happens. And I think that's the, the really the best way to learn. And so. It's how do you kind of incentivize folks or we call it incentive engineering at right. Lux, to really want to partake in the system and learn. I think that is almost like the biggest friction point and maybe one of the reasons why you've seen this little bit of divide between Web2 and kind of crypto native because not everyone is willing to kind of take that leap or, or spend a week or two diving into crypto and, and setting up their
0: MetaMask or whatnot. Yeah, I feel like that's great advice, not just for investors, but just for anyone who's curious about Web3 and looking to learn about it. Thanks so much for sharing all that, Grace. It was really great having you on and we covered a lot of ground today. So Enjoy the Bahamas.
2: (laughs) Thanks so much for having me, guys. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for listening. We'll be back every week with the top crypto news and interviews with experts in the space. You can catch us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite podcast platform. And subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction, at techcrunch.com forward slash newsletters. Check out the links in our show notes for some of TechCrunch's crypto coverage this week. And you can follow us on chain underscore reaction on Twitter. We'll see you next week. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kolkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening.